Good morning. My name is Jared Lawson. As Zach mentioned, I'm the pastoral resident here. Uh, so if we do plan a church one day, Lord willing, I'll be the one to lead that. Also, as Zach mentioned, some of you might come with me, which means this is kind of like my audition for you. By the end of this, you'll either be able to say, I think for the sake of the kingdom, I can tolerate this guy a bit further, or you'll say, no, thank you. I'm here, I'm fine with uh, Zach and Jeff. So we're finishing our Psalm series and how appropriate that we finish with by far the most popular, most famous Psalm in the entire Psalter, arguably one of the most famous passages in the entire Bible, Psalm 23. And the fact that it is one of the most popular presents a danger to us because as humans, when things become normal or common, there's a, a tendency in our hearts for them to become just white noise, they kind of fade into the background, we lose interest in them. Uh, my wife and I were watching a documentary on uh, the Challenger shuttle that tragically exploded in 1986. I was negative six or seven at the time, I think Jeff was in his late 30s, late 30s. Uh, and the whole reason that they uh, did that mission where they were gonna take a civilian, Kristen McAuliffe, and put her on a space shuttle, send her to space, was because people had lost interest in space travel. We went to the moon and then we kept doing missions and people were like, Mars yet? No? Okay, don't care. And so they thought, how can we get people to pay attention to NASA again? I get it. Let's put a non-astronaut in a space shuttle. That'll really do it. And it did. Everybody watched tragically as that happened. But that was the whole reason for it. People had lost interest. Space travel had become common. And so Psalm 23, I would think many of you have had this memorized since you were 10. This is your email password. Some of you probably have this tattooed on you somewhere, right? And so there's a danger that, you know, why do we need to hear a whole sermon on this? Why even look to it? We know it. It's great. God is a shepherd, blah, blah, blah. We're his sheep. And we can miss the beauties. We can miss the depths of this psalm because what we're going to have here, we look at David's incredibly intimate, incredibly personal psalm. David is going to describe for us the character of our God, chiefly that he is a shepherd, that the king of the universe is a shepherd. And he's going to show us three things, specifically the shepherd's provision for us, the shepherd's protection of us, and the shepherd's communion with us. So let me pray and then we'll jump in. Father, we love you. We thank you for your word. We thank you that your word does give us commands, that it tells us what to do and what not to do, what to do for our good and what we can avoid. But we thank you, uh, again, that it also describes who you are, that you've not just demanded things of us, but you've brought us into fellowship with you. And so we have this incredible psalm that shows your character. And so I pray that as we look to it, your spirit would minister to our hearts and we would see you a bit clearer. False ideas of you would fall away and we would see how you describe yourself in your word. So we pray that you are with us, that our hearts are open. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, Psalm 23. Let's look at the title and then we'll look at verse one. Uh, a Psalm of David, the Lord, Yahweh, is my shepherd, capital L-O-R-D, the Lord is my shepherd. So David we see is the author here, and then right out of the gate, the first thing that we see is that Yahweh is a shepherd. The Bible is gonna describe God uh, in, in a lot of different ways. God is a rock, God is a fortress, God is a king, but here David calls him a shepherd, which is significant that David calls him a shepherd. What is David's occupation before he's the great king of Israel? 
He's a shepherd. What's his resume? When Goliath is mocking the entire army of Israel, David hears about it. He's delivering pizza to his brothers. I think the VeggieTales say that. As they're on the front lines, he hears Goliath mocking God's army. He gets upset. He goes to Saul, says, can I go fight this guy? And what's his resume? Saul says, why would you go fight him? David says, well, I'm a shepherd. And every now and then, you know, as happens when you're watching sheep, a lion or a bear, you know, would get one and drag it off. And so I, quote, hunted them down, grabbed them by the beard and killed them. And this uncircumcised Philistine will be no different. So let that, first of all, correct your puny view of David, that he's this tiny little shepherd boy. Apparently he has killed lions and bears, plural, with his bare hands. So he's a shepherd. David isn't just saying uh, something nice about God. He's not just thinking of something nice to describe God. David knows what it's like to be a shepherd. David knows how a shepherd cares for his sheep. David knows how a shepherd watches over his sheep. So he looks to his God. How does my God view me? How does he care for me like a shepherd? That's the first thing. Secondly, notice he doesn't just call him a shepherd or the shepherd. He says he's my shepherd. David here is incredibly personal with God. He doesn't even say the Lord is our shepherd. He says the Lord is my shepherd. And this, in David's day, would have been incredibly radical. The other, other nations, the so-called gods of the other nations in the ancient Near East are very unconcerned. They don't care about man. Most of the creation accounts, uh, creation just happens because the gods are at war with one another and then creation's kind of like an accident. Gods aren't intentionally creating creation. And for man to get, you know, Asherah, Baal, the false gods to pay attention to them, they have to do these incredible, you know, cut themselves, offer child sacrifices, incredible things just to get the gods to look, bless them, make their crops grow, little things like that. And here in stark contrast to that worldview, David is saying, no, no, the king of the universe, my God, is a shepherd. He's incredibly concerned with me. He watches over me. He cares for me. And so right out of the gate, this may correct some of our views of how we see our God. Because a lot of us, at least when I hear people describe God, we describe him often like Santa Claus, and he sees us when we're sleeping, knows when we're awake, knows when we've been bad or good. So be good, right, for goodness sake. Right, he's, he's infinitely powerful and he's on his high throne. We have no problem with that. But we think he's sitting there just waiting to deal out judgment. You better not step out of line with God or else you're gonna get coal, right? And David here is saying, uh, it's the total opposite. Your God does see you when you're bad. He, he knows when you've been bad. He knows when you have never been good. And what does he do as a result? He sends his son. What did we celebrate two days ago? Your God cares. Your uh, shepherd God sends his son to save you. That is the king of the universe. A shepherd who watches over you and cares for you. And before we go any further, I need to address, I think, the most common way that we have read this psalm, at least by evidence of Christian books that I see and things like that. We get the psalm exactly backwards where the shepherd is not at the center of the psalm. Who's at the center of the psalm? The sheep that he's caring for. Uh, We were given, we have two kids now as of December 3rd, but our oldest one, he's young, he's 15 months, and when he was born, we were given tons of books, as happens, tons of Christian books. Uh, Christian books are great, except for uh, the typical unbiblical teaching that is in all of them. Uh, And so we're, (laughs) we're given a book, based on Psalm 23, and I was reading through it as my son wanted me to read them to him, and the author, rather than just putting the words of the psalm, decided to improve upon the Bible and give their interpretation, and there's lines like this, he, the shepherd, is getting wonderful things ready for me, especially for me, everything I could have ever dreamed of. 
I thought, wow, okay. That doesn't sound like a shepherd. That sounds like a butler to me. That sounds like a genie, right? That is exactly how a lot of us read this psalm. The Lord is my shepherd. We're the sheep. We're at the front of the line, and the shepherd's following us. When we're hungry, he feeds us. He's kind of waiting on us, and everything we could have ever dreamed of, he's there to serve us, right? Uh, And when our son did want, it's, it's actually one of his favorite books, and so when he wanted to read it a lot, I was here working, and I got a picture from my wife, and it was of her hand, and it was bleeding, because though she's godly, she's not very good at arts and crafts, and she had printed off the actual text of Psalm 23 and was taping it over the incorrect words in the book and had somehow cut herself with the teeth of tape. So uh, through much pain, she uh, struggles to disciple our children. Uh, And so that is, uh, David's point is not you, the sheep are at the center of this psalm, it's the exact opposite. This psalm is about the character of our shepherd exalting him as a shepherd. Why is that significant? Because a shepherd has to watch foolish sheep. Why is it so impressive that God is a shepherd? Because a shepherd's job is incredibly frustrating. Sheep are always wandering. Sheep are dumb. The Bible calls us sheep all the time, which by the way, doesn't mean we are intellectually stupid. I've heard a lot of pastors, especially seeker-friendly pastors say, everyone's dumb. That's why you got to dumb down your sermons. We're just dumb sheep, even though they have like lawyers and doctors and West Point grads in their audience. The Bible's never talking about our intellectual capacity, it's our moral foolishness, our prone to wander away from our shepherd. That is what the Bible means when it calls you and me a shepherd. We're prone to wander away from the shepherd. So why is it so incredible that David calls God a shepherd? Because he watches over people like us who are frustrating. So what is the first question we have to address looking into this? incredible psalm, is God your shepherd or is he a servant? Who is leading your life? Are you leading or is the shepherd leading? Who's in control of your life? Are you in control or is the shepherd in control? And many of us, I think if we're honest, we think we know what's best for our lives. We know how our lives should go. And I think that's true. If you, if you look at how we react when uh, things don't go our way, what do we do? We lash out at God. Surely he should be able to see like me. I, I, I've got these plans. Clearly this is the best plan for everybody. I've, I've thought through this, God. Why are you not paving the way, right? You lash out at God or take it a step further, you just deny that God exists entirely because how could a good God allow such things to happen? So that is how we view it. Right? We've got the right plans, but the Bible, completely in contrast to that, is going to say, you have no clue what you need. You have no clue what's best for you. There's an old Jim Carrey movie that I don't recommend uh, called Bruce Almighty, where he gets frustrated with God because things aren't going well, uh, and he yells at God and blames God, and God, who is played by Morgan Freeman, of course, who else could play God? besides maybe James Earl Jones, uh, Morgan Freeman gets fed up and gives him his powers, lets him be God for a week. And so Jim Carrey, as he's, you know, abusing God's power and then prayers start to get emailed to him, I think it was, he just says yes to everybody's prayers. And in two seconds, there's riots in the street, everything's going crazy. And he finally cries out to God and he's saying, I need your help. And he just says to Morgan Freeman, God, there were so many of them, I, I just gave them all what they wanted. And kind of the only good line in the movie, Morgan Freeman says, yeah, but since when does anybody have a clue what they want? Every parent in here, I would imagine, knows the worst thing you could do for your children is give them everything that they want. My 15-month-old son, 
desires two things in this life more than anything. He loves, loves grabbing knives uh, out of the uh, dishwasher drawer. You know, it comes down there in the front. He loves it. I mean, he'll sprint to the dishwasher and he loves crawling up on the couch and diving off uh, nose first into our coffee table. Loves it. Cannot get enough of it. But I, as a loving father, deny him those things. Why? Oh, I don't want him to cut his hand and I don't want him to have CTE by age four. So I deny him those things. Now, if I know that as a parent and you know that as a parent, how much more does an infinite God know better than us, know what we need, know what's good for us as opposed to what we think? And so David is gonna say right out of the gate, if you, to read this Psalm rightly, to see him at the center rather than us at the center, the first thing we need to do is see that we are foolish sheep. See that you are a foolish sheep that needs a shepherd. In fact, Charles Spurgeon says, no one can truly say God is my shepherd until he has completely given up every idle notion that he can control himself. So that's the first thing that we're gonna see here is that he is a shepherd. The way that you see the glories of his shepherd care is you see how hopeless your life is without a shepherd, how much you would wander without a shepherd. So God is a shepherd and David here is gonna walk through what does it look like to have the king of the universe as your shepherd. The first thing we're gonna see is that the shepherd provides. Look at verse one. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside still waters. He restores my soul. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his name's sake. What does it look like for God to be your shepherd? The first thing, you shall not want. You shall have no lack of anything. David has total trust in his shepherd. And the first thing we see that God provides is he provides for our needs. He makes me lie down in green pastures. What do you think of when you think of the green pastures? We all know this verse. I'll tell you what you think of. You think of Scotland. You think of green hills as far as the eye can see. And you think of Scotland because you're an American. Like, wait a minute. I think of Scotland because I'm an American. Just go with me here. So when you think of provision, your next meal, do you think of the vegetables that are growing in your backyard that you're going to get, you know, a chicken in your backyard, maybe laying some eggs, that's your next meal? No, you think of the giant Costco that's down the street that has an infinite amount of anything you could ever need. That's uh, provision for Americans. Everything we could ever want right now. And my wife, who's from Norway, when she first came to America, actually one of her first observations was, you have so many options for literally everything. There's like a thousand options for ketchup, a thousand options of cereal. In Norway, they just have cereal. It's just a box. It says cereal on it, right? They have no options, right? But that's provision in our minds, an infinite amount of everything right now. And often, that's the provision that we want from God. And I'll be honest, again, thinking about planting a church, when I think about all the things that are gonna need to come together for us to plant a church and all the steps and all the different you know, logistical things, you know what I want more than anything? Similar to Zach in, in the announcements, I want Jeff Bezos to convert to Christianity I would love, maybe Zach apparently knows him, so apparently maybe he can minister to him, but I would love him to convert and I would love him to move to McKinney and I would love him to join our church plant. It'd be so great. And he could tithe like 0.001% and I would have the richest church, I think, in the history of the world and then I'd never have to worry about anything again, right? No worrying about faithful giving, no relying on you know, anybody else. I'm fine. We'll buy you know, a massive building. Joel Olstein will look puny compared to, you know, but if you examine my heart in saying that, what am I really saying? I want the provision 
without the shepherd. Couldn't care less if the shepherd is there. My heart wants the provision. Notice here, David's point isn't the provision. It's not the green pastures. It's the shepherd that leads to the provision. And in fact, if you go to Israel, if you go to the wilderness where most shepherds are leading sheep and the barrenness as they're grazing, it looks like they're eating rocks. But if you go close enough, you see little shoots of grass uh, along the rocks and bad enough for a mouthful. And a sheep will get a mouthful and they'll move on. They'll get another mouthful and they'll move on, get another mouthful. And for some reason, the, shep- uh, the sheep uh, aren't anxious. Why? Because they trust their shepherd. Trust their shepherd to lead them to the next mouthful and the next mouthful. And that's often what God's provision looks like in the scriptures. How does God provide for Israel when they're wandering in the wilderness? Manna for the day. They're not even allowed to gather a week's worth. They must take the manna for the day. That's often what his provision looks like. Why? Because God, as our creator, wants his creation to live in relationship with him where we trust him where we look to him, where we have to trust his character as we look to him for our needs. But it's not just David who's pointing this out. What does Jesus say when he's asked, Lord, teach us to pray? Our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us today our daily bread. He says, look at the birds, look at the flowers. Your father feeds the birds and he clothes the flowers. How much more? Does he care about you? How much, of more, or how much more value are you than they? You have a good father. Why should you not be anxious? Because you have a good father who loves you and cares for you, right? God wants his provision to point us to him, to grow our relationship with him. And you may say, isn't that system just kind of creating more anxiety? You know, wouldn't it be, be better for us to have everything that we need right now? That way we don't have to stress about things in the future. And, and that idea, that question that is often asked assumes that if you actually do get everything that you need, you won't stress anymore. And you go hang out with any millionaire and you'll see that is not the case. I knew of a, a lady who grew, did grow up in poverty, but then she married a, a very wealthy man and her anxiety actually increased. They had to stock, I think, three freezers full in their garage of food just for the sake of her anxiety. Having the provision didn't make her anxieties go away. And in fact, it never will. There's only one thing that will, and that's trusting the shepherd. Trusting the shepherd is the only thing. And in fact, when you actually examine, when we want the provision, when we want Jeff Bezos more than anything else, you know what that's actually saying? We don't like our natural place in the created order. We don't like the fact that we are dependent beings, that we are creation, not the creator. We want to be God, right? We want to be in control of our lives, but really one step beyond that, what's really at the root of it is we don't trust the character of the God who does provide. We don't trust that he's the good shepherd or we, tr- we, don't, uh, we think we know better than the shepherd. But David here is pointing out uh, the way your anxieties go away isn't actually by getting what your anxieties crave. It's actually by trusting the character of your shepherd. That is how you finally rest. Trust the character of your shepherd. And again, you know, you may say, well, okay, that sounds great. That would be great if we could just trust God perfectly. But how do you actually do that? It's not like I can just reach into my chest and make myself trust God. Well, maybe this example will help. So uh, one of the things my wife and I 
think about often and, and consider uh, now that we do have kids is who do we trust with our kids? Like who, who, who can watch them? Who do we want them around to watch their examples? You know, if something happened to us, who would we trust taking care of our kids? And one of the people that we trust is Jeff Shocker. He's a pastor, of course. How could you not trust Jeff? So I trust Jeff with my life. I trust him with my kids' lives. Now, six years ago, If you were to ask me, do you trust Jeff with your children's lives? I would say no, because I didn't know who Jeff was six years ago. So what happened between six years ago and now? Did I just reach into my heart and make myself trust Jeff through will? No, what happened? I got to know Jeff. I saw his character. I saw how he loved his own family. I saw the man of God that he is, and it's the same with the Lord. How do you grow trust in God? You get to know God. You don't just will it into being, you go to his word, you see his written word that he's given us, you go to him in prayer, you cry out to him, you confess sin that would turn your eyes away from him, you fast, you meditate on the beauties of his word, you get to know God, that's how you grow trust. And when you see the character of your God, when you encounter, when you actually experience the character of your God, that's when anxieties actually begin to melt away. And so David points to that exact thing, the character of his God and shows how he provides for our needs. But that's not all he provides. We see next he provides rest. He leads me beside the still waters, literally in Hebrew, beside the waters of rest. This idea here isn't just physical rest, like you've gone on a run and now you need to sit down. It's holistic rest. This idea that you can totally just relax. Your worries can fade away. You, you can completely rest holistically, physically, emotionally, whatever. And why can you rest? Because the shepherd is watching. You can lay down by the waters and relax because the shepherd isn't relaxing. The shepherd is watching. You can rest because he doesn't. You can sleep because he doesn't. In fact, every night before you go to bed, the last thought in your mind should be worship. You can go to bed as a finite creature because your God doesn't sleep. He's in control. He's God, you're not, and that should uh, lift the biggest burden possible from your heart, and you should worship every time you go to sleep because it's a reminder. We need sleep, he does not. We have a good shepherd who never has to rest. So he leads us by the waters of rest, he provides rest, and then we see he provides life, he restores my soul. You see, uh, he doesn't just take away the bad things. He also fills us with good things, right? You don't just exhale anxieties with the shepherd. You inhale life. He provides life. He restores my soul. And then lastly, we see he provides guidance. He leads me in the paths of righteousness for his namesake. Literally, the right paths. It's this idea that there are tons of paths that you can take and then the shepherd leads you down the right ones, the paths of salvation, the correct ones. Your God is not a God who says, come figure me out. You, on your own, figure out the right paths, which is often how we view him. We view ourselves at the starting line, him at the finish line. There's a million paths in between us and him. There's one right one and he's saying, figure it out, good luck, you better not mess up. Why do we stress so much? What's God's will for my life? What are you saying? You you think he's got all these wills and you better figure it out, right? That's how we view God. But the God of the Bible comes down and he leads you down the path himself. He leads me down the paths of righteousness. He calls Abraham when he's a moon worshiper from Ur. He calls Moses when he's a shepherd in Midian. He's given us his scriptures to guide us and he's given us his son. He's literally come down and taken on flesh. Again, what do we celebrate two days ago? Your God 
comes down and leads you. He doesn't leave you alone. He is a shepherd who leads you down the paths of righteousness. That's the first thing David is gonna highlight in this first section, the shepherd's provision. And then next we're gonna see the shepherd's protection. Verse four, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil for you are with me. Your rod and your staff, they comfort me. So David, to illustrate the shepherd's protection, doesn't just give some light example. You know, when bad guys are around me, you fight them off. He gives the deepest, darkest, most intense example possible. One commentator said this, uh, the idea behind this, uh, the valley of the shadow of death, is that death is so close to you that its shadow has cast over you. You're standing underneath its shadow because death is so close to you. So not only is he in a terrifying place, but he's surrounded by evil, right? I I will fear no evil, it's because evil's there. And evil here isn't passive, it's active, literally hunting him down. So this evil's there. I have experienced uh, similar evil uh, when I went to Australia, let me explain. Uh, So I spent two years, two and a half years in Australia. My wife spent six, that's actually where we met. And I was sufficiently warned before I left that everything that kills you lives in Australia, everything. Uh, And so I was like, that'll be fine. And then I was watching Shark Week, actually the week before I was gonna get on a plane to fly to Australia. And I was watching the top 10 most gruesome shark attacks of that year, as you do. And 100% of them were all off the coast of Australia. And of course the environmentalist comes on and he says, sharks don't attack people. They just mistake people for seals. And I respond, I don't care about the shark's motives as he kills me and drags me into the depths. I care that he's killing me. So I go to Australia and you think, kangaroos though, aren't kangaroos so sweet? No, they are not so sweet. They will balance on their tails and kick you with both feet. They're really, 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 really mean. But there is something in Australia that is more evil than all of those things combined and that is the magpie. If you don't know what a magpie is, it is a crow that has taken steroids from birth. And when a magpie is nesting, they have a nice little radius around their nest. And if you walk into that, they will swoop down and claw your face. So when I got there, I saw all the people riding bikes and scooters and motorcycles had on their helmets zip ties. I thought, fashion is weird in this culture. And I realized it was not fashion. They were trying to make spears to protect themselves from the birds trying to kill them as they were going down the highway. Uh, And so we lived on a street that was an L. There's a house here and a house here and a house here. And I lived in this house and we ate in this house. So I had to go outside to walk to our meals. We had several magpies on our street. So I would grab a golf club and you're swinging it around as you're walking and kind of doing it. And so what you need to know, should you ever go to Australia, if you encounter a magpie, If you look at them, they'll stop. They won't fly away, they'll stop and stare at you and say, turn around, see what happens. So if you're looking at them, you're fine. So you just look and you back up. But what happens when there are several? One here and one there. You run, that's what happens. So that is the picture of the evil here, right? And and, uh, the valley of the shadow of death. So David is meaning to give us the most terrifying picture possible. He's in this terrifying place, he's surrounded by evil, and yet, what does he say? Even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I will fear no evil. Why? For you are with me. He doesn't fear evil because his shepherd is with him in the midst of it, protecting him, caring for him in the midst of the suffering. So here's the question for us. What is our ultimate hope 
in the midst of suffering, in the midst of difficulty? Is it God being with us in the midst of the difficulty or is it the difficulty going away? Ultimate hope, it's fine to get out of suffering, but what is your ultimate hope in the midst of it? And I think if we're honest, we would say a lot of us look to the light at the end of the tunnel. And let me just think of a random example. Uh, Oh, the year we just lived through. Right, 2020's been somewhat difficult, right? Pandemic, racial tensions, riots, murder hornets have made their way to the US. That's fun, big old uh, magpie insects uh, that are trying to kill us all. And what have you heard more than anything else? 2020 is the worst, please, can we just get to 2021? Right, we want this year done. What is that saying? We want the light at the end of the tunnel. We want this over with, and in fact, we have a culture that is obsessed with avoiding suffering. Why, why at colleges are we getting trigger warnings and certain things being banned, things like that, is because we don't want suffering, right? We're trying to avoid suffering. We have a culture that is obsessed with that and the scriptures are going to tell you there is no such thing as avoiding suffering in this world. This world is broken and riddled with sin. At the very least, you will bury everyone you love or they will bury you. That's at the very least. But the Bible is also going to tell you in the midst of the darkest suffering, there's a way through it and there's a comfort in the midst of it and it completely hinges on your shepherd being near. On your shepherd being near. David here, notice, says in the midst of all of this, I don't praise you because you get me out of it. I'm comforted, I'm protected because you're with me in the midst of it. You're with me in the midst of it. Most of us, I would think, know that when uh, someone we know goes through a tragedy, one of the worst things you can do is uh, go try and explain their pain away, explain their suffering away, try and cheer them up. And probably the best thing you can do is just go be with them, go sit with them. When Job goes through his incredible suffering, friends do come and they actually sit with him for a week in silence and he's comforted. And then they talk for a lot of chapters. And chapter 16, he says, miserable comforters are you all. Right? What do we want in tragedy? We want our best friend there. We want our family there. We just want someone to sit and weep with us. Now, that's just one human bringing comfort to another human. What if, what if the one who is with you is the source of all comfort? And in fact, the Apostle Paul, one of the titles he gives God is that he is the God of all comfort. 2 Corinthians 1.3, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of mercies and the God of all comforts who comforts us in our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any affliction with the comfort that we ourselves are comforted by God, the God of all comforts. You know, most of the time, we, when we pray, we pray essentially to ask, we ask God to give us an easy road. Protect us, you know, guide us, lead us, kind of move sickness out of the way, move suffering. Those are fine prayers, but that is, that is essentially what they all boil down to. David here says, uh, I know this world is broken. I know I live in a broken world. Be with me on the difficult road. David prays, be with me on the difficult road. And I could show you saint after saint throughout the history of the church that have learned this lesson that the true comfort in the midst of pain and suffering and agony is God being near. But I'll just give you one. David Brainerd was a missionary in the 1700s during the First Great Awakening and his life was marked by suffering. 
Uh, he, in fact, uh, died at 29. I'll turn 29 this year. He died of tuberculosis, and he ministered to the Native Americans in New England. He got tuberculosis at 18, uh, would preach to the Indians in the cold, uh, and would spit blood after his sermons. Uh, and perhaps most of all, he was uh, relentlessly struggling with depression, often alone in the woods, his horse would die, things like that. And we have his journals. Towards the end of his life, uh, we found his, or Jonathan Edwards rather, found his personal journals and published them. That's the only way we know who he was. His life actually, he didn't do anything great, didn't have any great Billy Graham crusades, but we read this towards the end of his life as he's dying of tuberculosis. Such fatigues and hardships are, uh, as these have served to wean me more from the earth, and I trust will make heaven a sweeter Formerly, when I was exposed to the cold or rain, etc., I was ready to please myself with the thoughts of enjoying a comfortable house or a warm fire and other outward comforts, but these have less place in my heart through the grace of God, and my eye is more to God for comfort. In this world, I expect tribulation, and it does not now, as formerly, seem strange to me. And I don't, in such seasons of difficulty, flatter myself that it will be better hereafter, but rather think of how much worse it might be or how much greater are the trials of God's, other of God's children and how much greater are yet perhaps reserved for me, but blessed be God that he is the comfort to me under my sharpest trials. And I think David Brainerd here is just echoing what David the king is saying in this passage, which is in the midst of the deepest trials, I find my comfort and my joy when I see that you're with me, that you're with me. And you, uh, you know, may say, well, that's great for David. Uh, sounds great, but I've gone through tragedy. I've cried out to God and he's nowhere to be found. I've gone through horrible, horrible tragedy, cried out to him like David here, and he doesn't just show up and comfort me all of a sudden. I'm left alone. And I would just say simply, uh, our inability to see that he's there doesn't mean he isn't there. Just because we don't feel him, just because he doesn't take away the pain doesn't mean he isn't there with us in the midst of the suffering. There are times this side of eternity where there are things so horrible that you think there's no way God could be in the midst of it. And the Bible in those times would just say his ways are higher than our ways, his thoughts are higher than your thoughts. And trying to comprehend the mind of God in that moment is like trying to pour the Atlantic Ocean into one of the communion cups that we take. There are times where it's, it's impossible for us to understand this side of eternity, but I guarantee each one of you have even gotten a small taste of a pretty rough time in your life where you thought your life was over and then you've come out of it and you see how God was in the midst of it. How many of you have ever lost a job and you are freaking out about how to put food on the table, uh, everything seems endless, and then another opportunity pops up that wouldn't have come had you not lost the first job. I would think some of us. How many of you, this is probably more common, have ever been heartbroken because a relationship has fallen through and food has lost its taste and there's no way you can ever move on because your spouse that you were supposed to marry just dumped you and so now you're destined as a single monk or something like that, right? But then now you know your spouse and there's nothing you're more grateful for than the fact that you didn't marry those other people, right? Because you found your spouse. My wife constantly telling me. She's, not, she's so glad she didn't marry any of the losers she dated before me. Ridiculous. Not true. Right? Each one of those, right? That's just a taste, a tiny little taste of what will happen for every single tragedy of your life once you see Jesus face to face. 
and he shows you how he was with you, and he shows you somehow how it was for your good. Every single scenario will turn for your good when you see him. Uh, C.S. Lewis, the author of the Chronicles of Narnia, one of the books in the Chronicles, my favorite, is called The Horse and His Boy. It's not the most popular, uh, but uh, it's a story of this boy named Shasta. That's the boy in The Horse and His Boy. Shasta, he's on this long journey throughout the whole book to warn the kingdom of Narnia of a coming invasion. And his journey is, is fairly difficult. He goes through some really hard things. And Aslan, the lion, who's Jesus essentially, usually is the main character. He's interacting with the kids in the story, but he's hidden in this whole story. Shasta never knows who he is on this long journey, but Aslan is still there. And when Shasta is sleeping and enemies are coming to get him, Aslan fights them off, unbeknownst to Shasta. When Shasta's walking on a cliff about to fall off, he feels this strange presence keep him on the cliff in the dark, foggy night, and he keeps walking. And it's not until the end of his life when he's tired and he's reflecting on this long journey that he thinks there's, uh, I've just been through one of the toughest lives possible that he finally meets the lion. And Aslan explains to him how he was there throughout the entire time. He never saw him, but he was still there and his providence was hidden until the end of his life. And a lot of the time that's maybe what it's like with us, with the shepherd being near. We may not see him, but he's there. And one day you will see One day you will meet him, and one day you will see. To quote Samwise Gamgee from Lord of the Rings, everything that was sad will become untrue. We will meet him one day, and he will show us how he was there. And so David uh, points to this very fact, the fact that you are with us in the midst of the suffering is where I find my comfort. So we see that shepherd's protection, and then lastly we see the shepherd's communion. Verse 5 you prepare a table before me in the presence of my enemies. You anoint my head with oil. My cup overflows. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. So David has shown us the shepherd's uh, provision, protection, and then here he gives us one of the most intimate uh, images, pictures in the Old Testament, which is a banquet. So David, as the sheep, has already eaten in the green pastures. So this table that he's sitting at isn't about being fed. It's about who he's celebrating with, his shepherd. He says, you prepare a table before me. David is actually the guest of honor at this great banquet. You anoint my head with oil. Anointing is something often, most often, for a king. A king would be anointed. But often in in a banquet, oil would be used to clear away the dirt from your face, to prepare you for this great celebration and his cup overflows. There's this abundance. There's this joyous celebration in the presence with the shepherd. And what David is showing us here in this last section is it is not enough to be provided for and protected by the shepherd. Technically, any cosmic force can do that. You need to know the shepherd. You need to commune with the shepherd. Your God is personal and you were made, made, literally created to know him personally. Athanasius, the early church father, said, what, what would be the point of us creatures living if we didn't know, commune with, fellowship with our creator? What would be the, po- the point, the prophet, in those who were made if we didn't know our own maker? And here David is saying, what, what joy would a sheep have if he didn't know his shepherd? And if you miss this final piece, if you get the protection You get uh, the provision, but you miss the communion. You miss Christianity. 
If you don't have fellowship with your living God, then you have some sort of weird transaction you think you've made where you, you know, give him obedience if he, worship, or if he uh, provides for you. I'll worship you if you bless me. And all of a sudden, you're like every other religion in the world. It's moralism. It's not Christianity. I'll obey you if you bless me in these ways. But David here is saying, don't miss the banquet. Don't miss communion with your shepherd. What else does he say? He moves on. Surely goodness and mercy will follow me all the days of my life. This word mercy, unfortunately, is translated mercy. It's the Hebrew word chesed. It is the most important word for an Israelite. This is God's covenant love that binds him to them. We saw this in Exodus 34. We've gone to this passage often where God reveals his character uh, to Moses when Moses says, show me your glory. And he goes by and declares his name, declares his character. And he says this, the Lord, the Lord, a God merciful and gracious, slow to anger and abounding in chesed, steadfast love and faithfulness and keeping chesed, steadfast love for thousands that goodness and chesed shall follow me, literally to pursue after me. Shepherds would lead in the front and the sheep are walking in a line and they would have either sheep dogs or a donkey that would run alongside and kind of keep the sheep from wandering. And so what David is doing here is personifying God's character. He's saying, when I as a sheep try to stray this way, your goodness brings me back. When I try and stray this way, your chesed brings me back. I literally cannot stray away from you because your character surrounds me. I can't even wander away even if I wanted to. All the days of my life, I am surrounded by your incredible character that protects me from wandering away from you. And then lastly, he says, and I will dwell, I shall dwell or return to the house of the Lord forever. So the shepherd has led him through the pastures, through the waters, through the valley, down the right path. And here we see the journey ends at the house of the Lord where he wants to remain forever for the rest of his days. What's the house of the Lord? The temple, right? No one actually lives there, but it's where God's presence would come and meet with man as the high priest would offer sacrifices. And so David is pointing to my ultimate joy. Isn't provision, it isn't protection, it is being in the presence of my God. It is communing, fellowshipping with my God. And we see this in other Psalms as well. Psalm 16, in your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand there are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 4, you have put more joy in my heart than they when their grain and their wine abound. Psalm 27, one thing have I asked of the Lord that I will seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all my days to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. David says, my ultimate joy is to be with you and gaze upon your beauty. Old Testament commentator Rolf Jacobson that I read uh, mentions on this last verse, I thought this was a beautiful summary. The point of of this psalm, the point of the shepherd metaphor is that the destination that one reaches after being led along the paths of righteousness, the destination one reaches at the end of his life, the destination towards which one is shepherded and indeed towards which one is hurried along by God's pursuing goodness and chesed is none other than God's very self. God is David's destination. And so again, we have to ask ourselves, is he our destination? One of the most important questions, we talk about this often, one of the most important questions for you as a Bible Belt resident where Christianity is normal is, is God a means to something else or is he the end? Is he a means to getting protection and provision and heaven and not hell? 
Or is he, knowing him, the very reason why you became a Christian in the first place? And you may say, well, how do I know? Let me ask you a couple questions. When things don't go your way, do you lash out at God? Is it because you think he is getting you other things, right? A means to something else? When you pray, are your prayers exclusively, it's okay to ask for things, but are your prayers exclusively asking for things? Or do you go to the place of prayer to worship him, to commune with him? Maybe he's a means to something else. When you read the Bible, is it a duty? You have to do it because you're a Christian or is it a delight? You want to drink in the word of God. When you think about heaven, when you think about eternity, what excites you? Is it a street of gold? Is it the mansion? All the other cool things we'll get, good things. They're there, they're not bad things. Or is it because God is there? and you'll get to be with him for all of eternity. When you disciple your kids, is it because you want them to be conservative and moral or because you've tasted and seen that the Lord is good and you want them to taste and see and you want them to know God? Basically, everything boils down to, did you become a Christian to get something or to get someone? Is he an end or is he a means? And David here is clearly showing He is the ultimate ends of all ends. He says, bless you for the provision, praise you for the protection, but my joy is found in being with my shepherd. And that is where he ends this incredible psalm, one of the most beautiful, famous passages in the scriptures and rightfully so. But there's one thing that can make it even a bit more beautiful. And it's not from David, but rather one who comes from his line. You see where this is going, who will be the ultimate shepherd, Jesus Christ's who comes, why? Why does he come? We all, like sheep, had gone astray. Each of us had turned to our own way. And so he comes and he says, I am the good shepherd. And how does he, as our good shepherd, how does he provide for us? He says, I will lay down my life for my sheep. And in fact, he's the only shepherd who's ever become a sheep. He walks through the ultimate valley of the shadow of death except when he is in the midst of the valley, when he's on the cross, does he say, but you're with me? No, he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? He was forsaken so that we could be comforted. He, the true son of God, the only one who is the true by nature son of God, was abandoned so that we could be adopted as his children. He takes an overflowing cup. In the Garden of Gethsemane, he prays, let this cup pass from me, but not my will, but yours, O God. He takes an overflowing cup, but is that overflowing with joy? No. It's overflowing with wrath. He drinks the cup of God's wrath so that you and I could drink the cup of God's joy and be at his table for all of eternity. And because of him, we don't go to a temple any longer. We don't go to a place to be with God. We go to a person. He says, he who has seen me has seen the Father. Something greater than the temple is here. And he brings us into the ultimate house of the Lord where we have fellowship with God for all eternity and we don't need to bring a sacrifice to enter into God's presence, he is the sacrifice. He is the sacrifice. And now we have the ultimate end of all ends. We have personal communion with our God because of him. Uh, My wife and I years ago went to Rome and went to the catacombs where a lot of the earliest Christians were buried and uh, a bit shocking to us, what we saw by far more than anything else painted and sculptures and things like that wasn't Jesus on a cross, it was a shepherd with a lamb over his neck. That's how a lot of the earliest Christians primarily viewed 
their savior as a shepherd and rightfully so. Because when we truly see what he did for us in the gospel, like David here, we can say with all the confidence in the world, the Lord is my shepherd. Let's pray. Father, we love you. We thank you that we don't have to create We don't have to create a God who is nicer than you really are. Rather, it's the opposite. You are infinitely more gracious than we can ever imagine. You are infinitely more loving than we could ever imagine, more beautiful than we can ever imagine. And so we praise you that when we were far off, you brought us near. That Christianity is not a religion that says, man, do the work, and maybe God will see and bless you, but rather the opposite. God does all the work when man was a rebel. So we thank you for the reality of your gospel, how it does take even the most beautiful psalm and make it infinitely more beautiful. The story that we celebrated two days ago that you sent your son to die for us, to bring us in. So we praise you and pray in his name. Amen.